Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall. And on this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast, I sat down with Dr. Tom Tonkin. Dr. Tonkin considers himself a recovering executive and an aspiring Renaissance man. As an executive in the professional services and software sales arena, Dr. Tonkin has over 30 years of business and technology experience. He is currently serving as the CEO of the Conservatory Group, as well as the co-founder and dean of students at the Sales Conservatory. Join us as Dr. Tonkin and I talk about how to manage dissenting opinions and make data-informed decisions. Hi, everyone. It's Jen DeWall, and I am here with Tom Tonkin, and we are so excited to be talking about how you can make disseminating opinions something manageable, something maybe more easy, something more approachable, so then you can make more data-informed decisions. I know that they heard a little bit about you on our opening bumper, but Tom, could you go ahead and just introduce yourself to our Crestcom audience? We are so happy to have you on the show today. Jen, I, I really appreciate you taking the time here on a snowy day um, here in Colorado. We actually both live here. It's a lot of fun. Um, <laughs> I, again, my tagline has always been the, uh, I am a recovering executive. I have been in the what I would call the standard corporate world for probably over 30 years. But uh, as of late, I've obviously launched into my own set of businesses. Um, from a, a workplace perspective, I am a learning and sales and DEI specialist. So some Things that you can go out Google and look for me, and uh, but I I am like a management consultant within those areas. Um, I have what I would believe is strong academic backgrounds. So I've done a lot of research in these areas as well, and you know part of the reason is is that I want to take what I've learned not only in my professional experience as well as my academic experience and sort of give back uh, to the corporate world. I think that's probably the best way to sum it up as we are here today. Yeah, I've, well, I have the question that I know we talked about this because I love how you identify as a recovering executive. <laughs> how did you come to maybe that description or identifier of yourself? I think anybody that has been an executive for 10 years is probably chuckling right now um, because uh, they probably said, you know, Tom, that's a really good tagline and I'm going to take it as well. And you should, you know, if if you go and work in large organizations where there's a lot of internal flux, uh, reorganizations, uh, redirection of resources and, and vision, it takes a toll on you just to do the job that you have been hired to do, um, you know, let alone just, you know, the, the nine to five thing that people expect. And it got to be a point where it's like when I left corporate America, I thought, I need a break. I need to go to rehab or something. Uh, <laughs> Is there an executive rehab? There should be an executive rehab. <laughs> there should be. And, <laughs> and uh, you know, sort of get my mind gear as to what I actually think my value is without a lot of the noise that comes from these large companies. And by the way, I'm not being disparaging in that because I think large scale organizations, that's just that's just the game. That's right. that's what's required to move these behemoth organizations forward. However, somebody who, you know, make a lot of decisions. I'm sure you've had people here talk about you know, the idea of decision fatigue. It gets to be a point where that, that rehab really helps when you're able to step out and say, look, let me, let me not make any decisions for the next <laughs> few days and, and just uh, think about uh, what it is that I do for a living and how I can help other people. Oh my gosh. I wonder what impact that would have if execs, because I know that likely, and, and I'm not trying to in any way say that other people's um, schedules, workloads are not high, but I know, again, you know, executive leadership, it can be a lonely place. And yeah, there's a lot of, you're highly visible. So there are a lot of different expectations. And so I think, yeah, it's only natural that decision fatigue takes place. And I don't think our listeners got in any way that you were disparaging that. I think we're recognizing that, it's a challenging role. There's a lot of weight on your shoulders. And I don't know, I think there's a lot of executive leaders that are likely feeling maybe even alone as sometimes I see in leadership or the classes that I teach, they may not even have the same opportunities to rely on their peers, to ask someone for help, to solve problems. I feel like sometimes 
that really lies within to figure everything out. And that's just challenging in and of itself. Like you don't have that support system that you might need. And maybe they do within their other executive team, but it may not be something that's as relevant to the role in their day to day. How did, yeah. What's your comment on that? Cause I imagine you struggled with that, maybe feeling a little isolated at the top or those extra pressure that you put on yourself because you have the title, you have that visibility. I, I will say this, that probably, well, no, not probably for certain. The hardest job that I ever had as I ascended into an executive role was that line manager job. When you went from an individual contributor, sort of, you know, you're the person that has the set of tasks and processes you have to execute. And then you become really good at that. And then someone says, because you're good at that, I'm going to make you a manager of those people, which if you think about it, it's a non sequitur, right? It's like that doesn't make any sense because I would guess about 50 percent of the behaviors that you need to be that manager of those people are completely different than what you just did. Right. I am. And again, I am, you know, I'm a widget maker, right? I'm going to make lots and lots of widgets. I'm the best widget maker there is. And so somebody comes along and says, Tom, you're such a good widget maker that you now need to manage other other widget makers. And I think everybody can recognize that those different and that there's no like onboarding of that job. If you're internal and someone gives you a promotion, no one says, hey, let's put you through onboarding. Let's put you into new hire training, which, by the way, I'm suggesting that people do, because in essence, that is a new job. Now, I would think that anything above that, it becomes better and you become better at it. But that is such a crucial linchpin of a position that I think that your experience in that position dictates what the rest of your ascension will look like, whether it be difficult or a little easier. My gosh, I think that brings up really, there's two things that come to mind as you're sharing that, because you know that our first leadership roles, those ones where we are starting to step up, can be uh, again similar to that executive. It can be really isolating. You might, you know, experience a little bit of the imposter syndrome, and that many companies and organizations don't necessarily give you that leadership training. They kind of think that, well, you figured it out for that rid- widget maker role, and so you can probably figure this one out. And I think so. There's that piece of feeling like you're maybe not set up for success. But then you also have, and just again, continuing with your um, with your story, you also have the widget makers that are fantastic widget makers. And they're so great. And they have no desire to be a people leader. Exactly. Yet, if you want them to move up, they have to. And I yep. think that's so interesting. And I don't have a solution for what organizations could do, but I do wish more organizations could promote people without making them people leaders and allowing them to shine with the strengths and skills that they have because they may not cross over. And we don't want to accidentally or inadvertently create awful experiences for the employees just by making that one wrong leadership choice. Yeah, you know, I agree with you because I I will tell you this, that maybe we don't have the hardcore definition of a solution, but I will tell you this, we can make it a heck of a lot better than it is today. I'll give you an example. I work within a company that for you to get a promotion, a prerequisite was that you manage people. So you're kind of stuck with, well, that's the, how do you say that? That's my reward that I'm going to get. And so therefore, you know, going up is good. You know, all of the, 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 I would think myths are in our head that ascension is really what everyone should be doing. And I don't necessarily believe that. I believe that it's what's the associated value that you bring to the corporation and maybe making the best widgets your company has ever seen is really where you should be. And there's a whole bunch of ways to reward you outside of just promoting. Yes, 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 yes. I love this. We're sharing our opinions, which I think is a perfect place to start, you know, going into our podcast topic, which is how we can manage those dissenting opinions and make more data-informed decisions. You know, we're talking about dissenting opinions. And I guess from your definition, would you just mean the opinions where we may not, not all be in agreement? We might be challenging theories. We might be challenging your observation or opinion itself. What would you say that problem might look like in organizations? Well, I I, it's, I, I define dissenting opinions as two p- opinions that are different. Okay. 
It's, it's that simple. And I, I start all of my conversations with executives with a, a quote that I'm not necessarily who said it. Um, I would love to have said it, uh, but I use it, which basically says different isn't always better, but better is always different. Different is all, isn't always better, but better is always different. So what do you want? You, you want better, I'm assuming. Don't we all? Well, by right. definition, it is different. And yet, I go to board meetings, look across, and, and it becomes this battle of homogenizing, I can't even say it, homogenizing ideas. Like, where can we get to the most compromised, neutral, non-boat-rocking <laughs> <laughs> right, idea? And because we can all get along, but then it's like, have we really looked around and below and above and outside whether or not that, that particular conclusion right, um, brings us to a better place? And so when I say dissenting opinions, I'm not sitting here, you know, rolling up your sleeves and going to go, you know, fist to fist with somebody. But I am saying that sometimes people look at something that's different and connect it to it being wrong. We've never done it like that before, or I've never heard of it like that. Therefore, it must be wrong or something we shouldn't, excuse me, shouldn't do. And I think some of the best ideas have come from somebody saying, well, you know, why not? Why can't we do these things? Why can't we change ourselves a little bit? Why can't I do something that's different? I remember being in a room with a and, and I'll, I'll leave the names out, but it was a large CPG company. And I was with the CEO and CIO and I had the CIO in the room and I was up on the whiteboard trying to explain something. And the entire time, you know, you're shaking and said, no, oh, that'll never happen. That'll never happen. No, no. Let, you know, let me give you 18 ways why this can't happen. And I finally kind of flipped it and said to him, I realize it can't happen, but what if it could happen? That's all I said. There was like this pause in the room. A lot of my peers looking at me like, I can't believe he actually said that. Um, <laughs> <laughs> We're supposed then, to think that it can't. We're supposed to think right. that it can't. <laughs> and, then, and, then he, and then he goes, I'll show you. And he gets up on the whiteboard for the next 20 minutes and outlines exactly how this thing could happen. And the CEO looks over and goes, well, why don't we just do it like that? And it just opened up this whole new conversation. And, you know, we can dive in the whole discussion around limiting beliefs and, and, and what we bring from that, because I think dissenting opinions and limiting beliefs kind of go hand in hand. Sure. Uh, the reason people dissent is because they have some limiting belief or some idea that that dissenting opinion um, is wrong or different or unworkable. You know, pick your poison, whatever the word you're using. And I think if we're able to uh, govern our limiting beliefs, we might be able to have an opportunity to manage those descending opinions. Okay. I love that you're talking about, you know, limiting beliefs as it relates to your team, how you filter that information, how you allow other people to bring diverse perspectives into the room or conversation. You know, what's interesting is I think I, you know, We've done a few different podcast episodes and never once have I heard anyone talk about limiting beliefs as it relates to the opinions of others at work. And I think that that's such a special correlation because, yeah, what I wrote down there, even with your perspective of like, a lot of people do think, oh, well, if I'm different, then I might not be getting it right or I might be wrong. And so I don't want to raise my hand or volunteer my idea just because different means wrong. And I think you deduced it down to a rule that is a limited belief. I love that, Tom. I think that's so powerful. So just PSA or public service announcement to yep. anyone listening right now, we're going to start with that one just because it's different does not necessarily directly <laughs> equal wrong. Oh my gosh. Thank you for saying that, Tom. I just appreciate that so much. So let's dive into it. So where do leaders get this process wrong? I know we talked a little bit about limiting beliefs and we might go more into it, but where do leaders get this process of managing dissenting opinions wrong? Well, I, I think what happens is, and, and I think it's baked into a corporate hierarchical culture in the sense that 
when, when, when I am trying to ascend, right? Let's go back. Let's rewind five minutes ago, whenever we're talking about how ascending uh, into, a, into a, a position is good. And so here I am, I'm trying to ascend. And the way I do that is I try to be noticed. I try to, you know, I want to take credit uh, for everything I, I possibly can. I'm not suggesting to do anything malicious, but I'd say you're, you're trying to gain the visibility of your boss to say, you know, uh, Jen, somebody, somebody special, right? That we should take a look at her uh, because I, I kind of see her all the time or she's, she's volunteering for really difficult things, has an interesting set of opinion. And then you get that, right? Then you get promoted. So what do you do as a leader? What, what's your natural inclination? Your natural inclination as a leader is everybody below you. Now, okay, now everybody just chill because I am now the leader. Nobody be rocking the boat. Nobody change anything. Nobody go against my dissenting opinion because I've got this. Because I'm going to go to my next level. I'm going to shake it up here, but I'm going to lock it down below. And that's how I'm going to move up because I don't want to have to compete um, for, you know, minutes, if you will, with, with those that might be able to provide me that visibility that I'm looking for. And again, none of this is malicious. It sounds like malicious. Maybe I'm describing it that way, but it's not in the sense that it is baked into corporate culture that that's what you need to do as a leader. Yeah. Um, I, I have a great book for everybody. If everybody's interested, it's called leadership BS <laughs> by a gentleman of, uh, Jeffrey Pfeffer. And if you go to Amazon, he's, he's a great author. I love him. But I think the title says it all. Um, where we talk about, like, for example, this idea of humility. Right? Oh, you know, if you read the leadership uh, uh, literature, right? Be humble, you know, help others and all this other stuff. I got to tell you, in middle management, that's not how it works. <laughs> in middle management, it's, you know, I'm, you know, I am the most humble person in the whole world, right? The, the dichotomy of, of the trying to stand out because that is how you, you know, you, you, you ascend into an organization. And so there's, there's an interesting fine line between, you know, being a go-getter and all that and, and, and really do help, you know, have a helping hand and all Now I'm not suggesting that everybody's like that, but it's very difficult in those middle, middle ranks. Sure. Well, and especially depending on that culture, that culture might drive, hey, this is, you know, this is how you you should show up as a leader here. This is what we want to see. Less humility. Right. We don't care. We want to see your ego. Tell people to do this. I think there's a lot of differences depending on that culture that you're in. And there's a few different things that even came to mind, even thinking about humility, because I think, you know, when you talked about promotions, I think, and you talked about this earlier, maybe I'm going back, but even thinking that if you get a promotion, yeah, let's go through onboarding again. And here's the thing that I would add to that piece of, well, if we're going to do onboarding again, let's talk about how this team, this small microculture or subculture within the organization, these are the norms, expectations that you want to know. Because I think that that's often a misstep too, is that we don't get people ready for that new avenue. And I guess I think about this from a place of pain when I received a promotion at, they've done so well working with all these people, they value dissenting opinions in that culture. They absolutely did. I could ask questions. I could kind of try to move the needle. I could ask questions just to be curious. It wasn't necessarily pushing back. But when I moved into that other department, the other role within this large corporation, well, then, you know, to take that book, what got you here is not necessarily going to get you there because <laughs> yes. I found out that my entire approach to even offering opinions was not respected or appreciated yeah. and actually was seen as me trying to undermine strategy. Yes. Whereas in the past area, it was actually me trying to understand how the strategy worked, not undermine the strategy. Exactly. But, <laughs> I know that was a little bit of a uh, <clears throat> kind of, of a tangent on that one. That's just what came to mind in terms of that onboarding bridge for me and just that challenge. So you talk about there's two types of change within a team, within an organization. Let's talk a little bit more about that type of change that can exist. So as anybody who's might have listened to me before, and maybe your, your listeners are new to me, um, I always tend to sort of default on sort of basic theory to give me a model to work off of. And there's a, a wonderful book called Cracking the Code, Code of Change um, by two gentlemen, um, uh, Noria and Beer. And 
what they have done over a 40-year period is to manage to to measure all the different changes in projects, organizational, just throw them all in a big bucket. And basically it came to the conclusion that there's only two kinds of changes. There's economical change or organizational capability change. Economical changes, I, you know, we, we need to be profitable. We need to reduce, you know, cost, excuse me, those kinds of things. Then there's another change, which is organizational capability. We need to make new things. We need to make them better. We need to be more entrepreneurial. And what's interesting about those two changes is what they came up with was, if you go into the, the research, there's six dimensions um, of how you qualify those two changes and the economic change is kind of a top-down command and control approach, right? Um, uh, top-down, we all agree what it is. We're just going to tell everybody what to do, and that's great. Organizational capability, though, is the other way around. It's going to be from the bottom up where you have people in the line management or the people that are in the field having to do those, creating that change and pushing that grass movement up. Now, that's all fine and dandy, but here's the problem. The problem is, is when you take that first one, that what's called theory E, the economic piece model, and you put it over top of the organizational capability. So it means you're driving organizational capability from the top down. That's really why you have these, these change efforts fail. If you go to the number, the number, anybody who listens to this knows this, 70% of all first-time change efforts fail. And that's one of the biggest failures is somebody says, I'm the boss and you all need to be better at something. Go transform, you know, go be somebody innovative and tell me when you're done. Um, <laughs> yes, I'm, I'm, I'm being a bit facetious, but trying to make the point that that doesn't necessarily work. And so what I always point to is what kind of leader are you and kind of know, you know, stick to your knitting. Right. Know which leader are you a top? Because, by the way, I'm not suggesting that top down's bad. I'm, I'm just saying that's often misused when you're trying to generate new organizational capability. But you have a top down. Those leaders that have that perspective, my advice to you would be, how can you motivate and incent and inspire those at the lower levels to take that that leap? to create the organizational capability change that you desire. That is where you see the successful companies and leaders. How do you bridge the gap though? Because I, I'm going to speak as if, you know, I was just in this role where I might be that entry-level employee. Maybe I'm even a frontline leader and I can see the impact of the strategy. In my opinion is that this may not have been the most well thought out strategy. We may not have the right resources, the right amount of time, whatever that answer might be. How do you bridge that gap between those differing opinions or like that will exist maybe between the top down and that bottom up? How do you, what's that point of, I guess, marriage where they can see each other? How do you do that? Because I know even from the other perspective, especially if it comes top down, you may not ever feel comfortable vocalizing or even sharing that. So how do you bridge that gap when there may be that those differences in opinion? Well, there you have it. I mean, that's, isn't this the theme of our podcast today, right? Is managing those dissenting opinions. That's another opportunity. I think there's a couple ways of doing it. Um, obviously there has to be fluid communication uh, up and down the, the hierarchy. One of the other things that I'll leave your listeners with is, you, you see these companies go through internal reorganizations, and usually those internal reorganizations are very vertically oriented. People report to so-and-so, we're going to move this division to that side, very sort of vertically oriented. And yet, there's plenty of evidence that organizational changes at a vertical level really don't impact the business that much. What really impacts the business is, is that horizontal connection. My ability to to work with my cross-functional peer at every level, whether I'm a, an individual contributor all the way to an executive, what can I sort of, quote, unquote, reach over the aisle, as they would say in politics, and be able to work together? That's how it moves. And so as a leader, again, now I'm putting these pieces together for you, understand the kind of change that you're going through, economic versus organizational capability, which, where, where does it emanate? What's the genesis of each one of those changes? Number one. Number two, as a leader, ensure that your 
your cross-sectional, your, your cross-functional communications, your horizontal communications are alive and well, and people aren't uh, stopped from working together because that's how you're going to move forward. And then lastly, of course, is having that fluid communication to sit there and say, you know, like what's going on in the field? See, this is the problem. And again, it's inherent in, an, in a hierarchy because think about this. It's just very physically easy to see. If I'm here and this is my, uh, this is the field and I move up and I move up and I move up, I'm getting further and further away from the action. Right? I don't see, and so one would say, well, that's good. You're at the, you know, the balcony, if you will, and you can see down at the dance floor, but you become disassociated to the dance floor. You're not, you don't hear the people. You, you don't feel the sweat. You don't, and so there's, there's this idea that you have this third-person view of the external business, and you can't make those changes, or at least you don't understand what changes need to be made. And so you need to be at the dance floor level. And of course, as executives, sometimes, you know, you can't because you're, you know, running a business or whatever, but down on the floor, the people know they're sweating, they're dancing. They know to win slow dance. They know when a fast dance, they know who's a better dancer. You know, I can use all the dance analogies here, but um, <laughs> you could see, you could see that the further up you go, you're just being very disassociated. So how can you create an associated view of what's going out in the field? Oh my gosh. I think that if, if, you know, organizations, teams, leaders could answer that question, I think people would feel so much more supported, so much more, I guess, engaged and just knowing that their team sees them, understands what were those constraints, understands what song they're listening to. I love exactly. that example of the metaphor. What song are they dancing, dancing to? How fast are they dancing? How slow? You know, again, we can think that view of the balcony. Are you disassociated? Crosscom is a global organization dedicated to developing effective leaders. Companies all over the world have seen their managers transformed into leaders through our award-winning and accredited leadership development programs. Our signature BPM program provides interactive management training with a results-oriented curriculum and prime networking opportunities. If you're interested in learning more about our flagship program and developing your managers into leaders, please visit our website to find a leadership trainer near you. Or maybe you yourself have always wanted to train and develop others. Crosscom is a global franchise with ownership opportunities available throughout the world. If you have ever thought about being your own boss, owning your own business, and leveraging your leadership experience to impact businesses and leaders in your community, Crosscom may be the right fit for you. We're looking for professional executives who are looking for a change and want to make a difference in people's lives. Learn more about our franchise opportunity on the Own a Franchise page of our website at crosscom.com. I want to move into this because I know we didn't touch on this yet, but okay. your organization, the conservatory group mm -hmm. founded, and I know we didn't talk about your past musician as, or excuse me, career as a musician. And I know that there is a lot of experience that brings, or that you bring from that to the conversation that we're having right now. And one is also in the form of feedback. Could you tell us a little bit about how we can manage dissenting opinions and how we can give feedback in a way, hey, maybe we can't, you know, do this. You have a different idea. Doesn't mean to ignore it. Doesn't mean to not address it. But if you're going to address it, how do you address that if you're not going to go forward? Or how do so you I, I, give feedback? Yeah, well, I'm going to I'm going to paint the picture. So let's get a sort of a running start to the conversation. So, um, yes, I was a professional musician. And as far as I'm concerned, if it paid any uh, decent money, I probably would still be doing it. Um, but as a professional musician, I went to a music conservatory to learn music. And I learned had to move from, and I started as a saxophone player, um, but then moved into a bass player because I couldn't get gigs as a saxophone player. And what happened was I was, a, I, I moved from someone that played the bass to a bass player. And it's a nuance. But if you think about it, in each of the functions in the business, are you a person that sells or are you a sales professional? Are you somebody that does payroll or are you a payroll expert, right? What, how, what, what is that movement? And that movement comes from the ability to learn, 
to be self-directed and to accept feedback from not only people, but things, situations, and circumstances. And I think what happened was my experience in the conservatory where I get feedback all the time, right? Some, my, my professors, my uh, studio teacher, yeah, everyone had a studio teacher. So the person that kind of knew you, think of it like a guidance counselor, if you will, who kind of knew your instrument and was able to help you. It, it was 95% feedback. You did this wrong. You did that wrong. You should do this. You should do that. Don't forget this. Don't forget that. Um, I grew up that way. I was a teenager when I started. And I ended up going in my 20s. And you just kind of did that. And when I got to the business world, there's this barrier of feedback that goes up. Like, it's a, like you know, don't say those things in public. And, you know, I remember sitting in a jazz ensemble. and missing a note like anyone would miss a note and the 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 conductor who's got you know ears like a you know like a doberman (laughs) would would go hey tom you know that was a b flat not a b do you know what key we're in you know and i'm like oh yep you're right i actually knew that i made that mistake won't happen again everybody in the room they know but everybody in that room said i could have hit that b flat the same way Everybody knew that they could have made that same mistake the same way. It was nothing to be that way. However, do you imagine sitting in a boardroom and somebody taking a look at Jen? Yeah, that that slide that you had that up there with that number? Yeah, that's wrong. Yeah, you really shouldn't do that. It's this other number. Everybody, could you hear what he said to her? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> I, could, I should have pulled her aside and, and all this other stuff. But that's because we have this sort of weird perspective of feedback where so it's not the giving the feedback part it's the the reception of the feedback that is all around because like when you play music in a professional jazz ensemble status quo is playing it perfect that right (laughs) like it's not like hey we only missed two notes yay no it's playing it perfect. And everyone kind of says, okay, that we, we, like we did our jobs. You know, you, you hear about session players that play in LA and Nashville for other people's music. You know, they get paid to play it right the first time. And they don't, nobody gets high fives or pats on the back. You just like, like you did your job. I don't know. Think, you know, thanks for showing up. Here's your money. Go. In, in in business, it's it's kind of weird, isn't it? Where someone says, "Well, we got close, so close." Is, yeah, let's high five. You know? <laughs> it's like, <laughs> no, isn't the idea to get it right? And if we don't get it right, shouldn't someone help us get there and tell us it isn't right or tell us what isn't going? So it's not so much the feedback as it much as to the culture or the perspective that somehow you were outed or you were called out or, or something like that. That's a bad thing. Let me pause there for your reaction. I feel like I spoke too much. No, you, you this think? is great. I love it. You know, I think what comes to mind for me off of that is, you know, I can still think of, <laughs> I can think of examples where I think, yeah, everyone absolutely did the, oh my goodness, can you hear what just happened? But then also there's that opposite side of the feedback where, you know, I'm not necessarily feeling bad for that individual getting it, but then I'm also looking at the person giving the feedback to say, could you have probably said that in a better way? You know, so when I think that ties into talking about language, which we're going to get into, because I think, you know, you have to start with the culture. I totally agree with you, Tom. You have to start with paving that culture, creating a culture where people are open to feedback. But then there's that accountability. You can give feedback, but you also have to take a little bit more time to be intentional about how you deliver that feedback. I think that so often, especially when it comes down to disseminating opinions, there's so much ego. I'm right. You're wrong. You're stupid. This is why you're thing blank. And There's so much emphasis around proving my worthiness, proving my rightness, that there's no emphasis or accountability on, you know what, maybe I can describe that or share that in a different way. So I I love this conversation and where it's going. And I think it's so important. We have to have the right culture and we also have to have the right accountability for the leaders that, 
you know, depending on your culture, you don't get permission to personally attack to do X, Y, Z, which I've observed in many corporate settings. So I don't want to pretend that it doesn't exist. You know who you are. If you may be that person, <laughs> you got to do some self-reflection and think, is this really productive? So let's dive into that language component, unless you have a response on that one, but talking about the language that we use as it relates to dissenting opinion. So I'm going to start with uh, an example of the economy. So how many times have you heard in the news, in the press somewhere, and somebody said, it's a good economy or it's a bad economy. The economy is not a thing. It's just, it isn't a thing, right? The economy isn't something that has a measurement and it needs to be 10 and not four. There's no such thing. The economy is how money gets spent and how we all do business. The good and the bad come in from a point of view. Just like, just like if, 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 if good things are happening to me, I'm going to say the economy is good. If bad things are happening to me, I'm going to say the economy is bad. Irrelevant of what actually might be happening out there, number one. Number two, let's then move closer to the business. Change is always a good one. It's a bad change. It's a good change. Okay, once again, what? who says it's a good change? Well, it's the people that benefit from the change. The bad change is the people that don't benefit from the change. And so I think one of the ways is to govern ourselves a little more and start thinking about the qualifiers, good, bad, up, down, <laughs> big, small, <laughs> right, uh, that we put on to other things in the business. And I hear that language all the time, these qualifying languages, which I'll tell you from my perspective, because I, I consider myself uh when I'm doing work with executives, I consider myself a business anthropologist, right? Oh. Somebody that like dives in and kind of like, like the Indiana Jones of business, right? I'm looking around and I'm seeing the jewels and I'm trying to figure out how the little gold man got here. And right. And, and, it, and it's very, very interesting. There's a great, great story. I want to share with your listeners. Uh, one of my academic heroes, Edgar Schein, he went to a large organization CEO of a large organization in Switzerland. And the problem was that no one was collaborative. He's like, we need to be more collaborative. I don't understand it. So he says, I want you to fly in here and we're going to talk about how we can be more collaborative. So he says, comes down, he sits down, he's in the lobby, he looks around, it's a beautiful lobby. The receptionist says, you know, so-and-so is ready to see you. He then gets up, they open this big wooden door and there's this long hallway with every single door of this hallway into offices closed and then there's little lights above each of the doorways one and and some lights were red some lights were green and some lights were turned off and they're just walking down this hallway and edgar kind of leans over to the receptionist and says can you tell me about these lights and he goes oh sure red means someone's in the room but you they're don't disturb you can't knock Green means they're in there, but you have to knock before you go in. And when it's not on, it means that nobody's in the office, but all the doors are closed. And he says, I think I know what the problem is. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. So um, <laughs> my point is, when I look at these kinds of businesses, like that anthropological look, when I am across from the CEO and the CEO says to me, True story. Um, you know, my people aren't motivated. You know, they don't want to change anything. As a matter of fact, every time we have a team meeting on Fridays, everybody sits in the same chair. And I'm going, okay, um, what'd you do about it? <laughs> and he said, what do you mean what I do about it? I'm like, well, it seems like it bothers you. What did, what, what did you do? And he's like, I didn't do anything. So you just kept doing what you kept doing yourself. You basically telegraphed that status quo and not doing anything is what everybody should do. So everybody's following your lead. <laughs> so you're talking about language, good, bad, up, down, closed door, red light. Don't do anything right. These are all giving off signals that create your cultural norms and you don't even know it. Again, I'm not being disparaging. I'm just saying this is human nature. 
And when you watch it in the in full display, it's phenomenal to see not only the problem, but how easy it is to fix. I love even talking about, <clears throat> did you do anything about it? No, <laughs> you know, because I think it's so it's obviously it's so easy to complain about anything and not do anything about it. I probably did it two hours ago. Right. There's, like, yeah, sure. That is human nature. And so, yes, to reinforce, we're not judging you. We're not saying it's bad, but we are saying maybe there's a little bit more to opportunity to put on your own anthropological hat and say, yeah. what could really be going on? So I want to talk about that because why don't we say something? What are today's leadership constraints that can make it more challenging for leaders? Well, I think there, there, there are three that come to mind that I think will sum up pretty much what we've been talking about. I think the first one is sort of this, this lack of self-assurance. Are, are you comfortable or uncomfortable with consequences? So make a you make when I'm, I'm gonna, now I'm going to make this uh, language on purpose. You make a bad decision. Remember, I told you about decisions are bad. That's the qualifier. Just your but point of view, which I think should help everyone. Exactly. <laughs> like they right. are just a point of view. We, you yeah. know, there has to be more research to understand whether they're bad or good, and it's just right. someone's point of view. Love so, that. So, yep. <laughs> yeah. So then you go, you make a, this bad decision. The decision is you made a decision that didn't get to the outcome you wanted to come. Therefore, you qualified as bad. Are you comfortable with that consequence to be able to say, oh, I screwed up. I need to make decisions. As a matter of fact, I screw up, but you need to help me fix it. Are you comfortable with that interaction? And does your culture allow for that? That's one thing. Um, and I'm going to suggest that that's a big thing. Second one yeah. is this idea of personal values. What I like to do is I like to pre-think decisions. I like um, when I visualize, there's a great video for everyone out there about visualization with Michael Phelps. Michael Phelps, he does more swimming in his head than in the pool. And for example, he does this um, visualization exercise. Um, his coach taught him, what happens if your swim trunk rips when you're swimming? What do you do? Pre-think that decision. Pre-think all the things that could go wrong all a single time. So when you then jump in the pool, nothing will be a surprise to you. Not only won't it be a surprise to you, you'll actually have a solution for it. Um, what a, can I ask a question? Sure. What if you have a tendency, because I see this in my coaching world where sometimes people can be great at visioning or you know, you can call it scenario planning, but what happens when you just always think that every single thing is going to go wrong instead of thinking, but what if, you know, my swim, my swimsuit doesn't rip? What if I do do this? Like, I, I'm just curious what you say, like how you would respond to that? Because I think some people listening might be like, okay, well, let me make sure that I'm anticipating every worst possible outcome. <laughs> and then all of a sudden you feel more stressed, burned out, disengaged. How would you approach well, that? Yeah. So let, let me give your listeners something to jot down to help them out. Basically, there are three types of change that can occur at any time. There's what's called anticipated change. It's, it's going to go like I think it's going to go. There's emergent change. It's going to, something's going to show up that I don't want to have happen. And there's opportunistic change, which is something that I didn't expect to happen, but actually was good. So what I like to do is, so those are the three things that, yeah. that, that you can, in your visualization, when people are visualizing it, make sure you fill all three buckets. Yeah. Visualize anticipated things, visualize emergent things or things that are anticipated, but not what you want to have happen and opportunistic, not anticipated, but actually a welcomed sight. Oh my gosh. I love that. And thank you for saying that because again, <laughs> I just hear that all the time. I'm like, well, well, heck what? Of course you're not feeling enthused or enthusiastic or energized. You think that the world is going to completely fall apart in the next week. Yeah. That would make me not want to get out of bed. So I well, love you can, right. So you're, so you're, you're, you know, you've got two little buckets and opportunistic and, you know, and anticipated and you've got this big emergent bucket, right. Um, unfortunately that's a very human quality, but yeah. I think it'd be healthy if people would go that in a cognitive way and just make sure that all buckets are filled. 
I love that. So let's, yeah, let's go back. Sorry that I interrupted you. I just no, had right. to ask that. Um, how do you, so let's go back to talking about personal values and pre-thinking the decision. So you were talking about the Michael Phelps yes. example, envisioning. Yeah. There, there's also the other thing that I want to bring up around pre uh, personal values around regret. Now there's a great book that's going to come out uh, by Dan Pink um, about regrets. And I look forward to it. It's, it's, it's not out yet. Um, great author is, as everyone probably on your podcast has listened to, but I have ta- I've th- thought about regrets in the past and regrets. Part of the reason that we have regrets is that um, we are looking backwards with today's values. So that Friday night in college, when you thought that, you know, uh, having 18 beers was a really good idea um, and then getting sick. Well, that night, it was a good idea for whatever reason. You know, maybe even the next day you regret doing that, but you're now regretting it with a set of values that are today. And so that's why personal values as a whole, it's very important for you to be in tune with those. And I, I regret a ton of things that I've done in my past, but because I am using my values of today that have matured over time, and I look back because some of those decisions I made at the time, you know, seemed like a good idea because those were my values back then. So personal values is a very important issue with leadership constraints. And that's why when I'm when I think about people making those decisions, um, you know, what are you, what are you looking around? What are the value systems that you have? Sometimes people are going, well, I need to keep my job. So I'm going to make the popular decision, even though it's not the right decision. Well, if you have personal set of values, that's like a slap you in the face. And it's something that 10 years from now, you're going to look back and go, I compromise my values. Um, so I think, I think that's one. And then last one, because I have three of these ideas of these leadership constraints is this idea of lack of empowerment. Now, lack of empowerment, if anyone can hear me. So lack of empowerment is one of those mushy business terms. Hey, let's all be empowered, right? I put a little fine point to it. I, I say empowerment comes with authority and resources. So, and I'm not talking about, you know, massive authority. I'm talking about you, you, you have a job, Jen. And if I want to empower you, let's say I'm your boss, I need to give you the authority to do it. And I need you the resources to do it mm-hmm. in that little cocoon. And I think sometimes when a leader says, I want this to happen, but they don't empower their people, i.e. resources and authority to get it done. Now you have this sort of artificial leadership constraint. You're asking people to do this thing with both hands tied behind their back. Yeah. And so I think you have to understand what that empowerment means. It's not, it's, this shouldn't be a bullet in your QBR at the end of the quarter to your stockholders, right? It has to be something that actually is out in the field and people can touch and feel. Um, and and be able to act on. Yeah, making sure that people actually can have autonomy over a decision. Or I love that, the description of you're giving people essentially a task to do with both of their hands tied. How are you setting your leaders up for success, including yourself? Maybe you need to ask for more autonomy or more responsibility because I think one piece of that too is You know, us advocating for ourselves and learning how to advocate to say, this is what I need. Can you help me? Instead of saying, well, I guess they didn't give it to me, so I guess I can't do it. Not sure why we're just went into that tangent, but um, I have loved our conversation, you know, so much. I mean, again, one of the takeaways that will stick with me is just because it's different doesn't mean that it's wrong. And then also being mindful of those qualifiers. You can say something is good or bad, but as a matter of fact, it's likely just a point of view, unless you have data that you had can benchmark against a strategy or an expected result to actually say, yeah, this was less than where we went. And I think a lot of people miss the boat on actually even assessing that, or they might look at a top level revenue instead of looking at maybe a strategy and how that contributed to the revenue. And I think there's the missed opportunities. Tom, I know I want to invite you back because I think you're just an excellent like wealth of knowledge, but I I want people to be able to get in touch with you and knowing that we're coming down on time. How can people connect with you? I know I'm going to add and talk about one of your assessments and the bumpers, but I want them to hear about that from you first. How can they get in touch? So, so I am all about lowering the barrier of entry to talk to me. 
Um, I am on the on the other half of the hill of my career, and uh, there is an aspect of me that wants to leave a legacy. And if that legacy is a two minute phone call that I can tell somebody something from my past, let's do it. Um, I, I if anybody knows how to use the application Boxer, which is kind of a fancy asynchronous, synchronous voicemail text messaging thing, very very cool, free. I'm at Dr. Tom Tonkin, Dr. Tom Tonkin. Vox me. I've had plenty of people do that where they just say, I have one question about something you said in a podcast and it'd be great. Second, obviously there's plenty of places. My party trick, Jen, is that um, if you go to Google and type in Tom space Tonkin, uh, I'm the first page of Google. Um, I'm not that I'm famous or anything is that I think I understand how the Google algorithm works. And so that's a little bit of a party trick. Hey, I, I did that, by the way, at a cashier. I had to, hey, you got your cell phone lunch? Type in. Well, anyway, long story, but it was funny. Um, so, and then, um, so yeah, please connect Twitter, LinkedIn. It, it'd be hard uh, to miss me. And then lastly, uh, I want to leave something for your listeners. Um, I talked a little bit about self-direction and self-directed learning and the ability to be your, your more autonomous in your way. We actually have a assessment one that I personally researched and created. And in the show notes, there's a link to it. Um, it's an obscure URL because it's not really out yet. Um, it's going to be for, for fee, uh, but for you and your listeners, it'll be for free. Um, so go ahead out to the show notes, click on the link. Uh, it'll, you may be surprised what you find out a little bit about yourself and your own self-direction. Oh my gosh, Tom, thank you so much for that special offer for our audience. And again, thank you so much for sharing our, your time, your expertise, all of those nuggets that you just shared with us. It was great to have you on the show. And thank you, Jen. I look, look forward to doing it again. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of the Leadership Habit Podcast. I really enjoyed my conversation with Dr. Tonkin. If you want to connect with him or learn more, you can actually call him on Voxer. That's an app. You can call him on Voxer under Dr. Tom Tonkin, or you can connect with them on LinkedIn. Also, if you want to, they're offering right now for a limited time, a DLI assessment for free. So you can follow the link in our show notes and that will take you to access that assessment. And of course, if you enjoyed this podcast, share it with other leaders, help them grow. 